a listener production. This is Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. Join us each week as we break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now and what's likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr Keith Souter, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name is Sasha Tannock. I'm a journalist. And Keith, today we're looking at the Australia-US alliance. Now, when we have a look at this alliance, we need to have a look at Australia more broadly. What are the main themes in Australia's foreign policy? Yes, I think if you start in 1788, go all the way back, there's been a high degree of consistency in Australian foreign policy. Uh, One theme is the fear of invasion. So one of the first things the Europeans did when they arrived in Sydney was to build a cannon in the mouth of the harbour. In other words, they were worried the French were going to get in behind them in this new location of Sydney. So we've we've always had this fear of invasion. Similarly, if you go along the east coast of Australia, you'll see cannons that were installed in the 1850s when Britain was at war with Russia in Crimea, back in the news again at the moment, and we were worried the Russians were going to come down to the east coast of Australia. Uh, we're a long way away from the Crimea, but nonetheless, we've installed those those cannons. They're still there. Uh, if you go down to Wollongong, for example, you can see them. I know the one, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so one theme in our foreign policy has been this one of fear that somehow uh, being in the bottom right-hand corner of the map, the rest of the world is going to fall into our corner. So one is fear. A second one is the idea that Australia can't defend itself. So we have this fear of... We have this vulnerability um, that it's such a big open land. Now, I would be inclined to say, look, we are surrounded by a giant moat. Uh, it's very difficult to invade this country. And some people who've tried to get to this country have perished, and we just don't know about it. The coast is not like Bondi Beach all the way around. So on the West Australian coastline, you have rugged cliffs. You sail into those cliffs as a lot of Dutch sailors did 400 years ago, and you will just disappear. Very inhospitable, some and areas. And the yeah. Northern Territory, you've got mangroves. You step out of your boat and you plummet through all the mangroves where where you get eaten by a, a crocodile. So we have a good protective moat, which would have protected us uh, for many years, different now in the era of, of aviation. But we have this fear that we cannot defend this country. And then the third theme is that we need to have a great and powerful friend and that therefore Australia pays an insurance policy to that great and powerful friend in the hope that when Australia needs assistance, that great and powerful friend will come to our assistance. So between 1788 and 1941, it was Great Britain. So the Australians were fighting in the wars in which Britain got involved. And then 1941, We get the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbour and then a few weeks later the defeat of British forces in Singapore and then it's quite clear that Britain can't defend Australia and at that point Australia then shifts its alliance to the United States. So Australia has been the most consistent supporter of the United States since World War II, much more so than, say, Britain or New Zealand. So that's been the the third theme in our policy, that we have these great and powerful friends. We supply forces to them in the hope that they will come to our assistance. 
And I think a final theme of our foreign policy has been boredom. We just are not that wide. Okay, we get paranoid, but it's a, you know, we pay the insurance and therefore we forget about it. We're like a homeowner. We pay the insurance, therefore we don't worry about fires and floods. We paid the insurance. So it means, therefore, that Australia does not discuss its foreign policy nearly as often as, say, the British or the Americans seem to do. And so what we're looking at today is a new report, at least this is the interim report, from a group called Independent and Peaceful Australia, which is designed to try to stimulate some debate about Australian foreign policy. And in fact, there's a national public inquiry underway into the costs and consequences of this Australia-US alliance for the people. And that's what we're talking about today, the People's Inquiry. So what exactly is it about and who's behind it? So a People's Inquiry um, is one that is not run by the Australian government or a state government. I chaired a People's Inquiry into uranium mining in Australia 40 years ago. Um, It's the time when uranium was a hot issue and the non-governmental organisations got together, much as they've done for this current report, to um, seek submissions from the general public and then produce a report, which we did. And the basic argument of the report is that nuclear energy may well be the energy of the future, but it's not the energy of the present. And that was 40 years ago. And we're still saying that today, even though we are the Saudi Arabia of uranium, because we've just got so much stuff, we're keeping it in the ground. You've got some people who say, look at how much money you can make if you were to sell the stuff. But we were, took the view that it was still unsafe to be selling it. And, of course, we've been proved right. So thankfully we didn't. Otherwise, you know, who knows, Iran might have acquired nuclear weapons by now or whatever, armed with Australia's uranium. So uh, that was the report that we conducted 40 years ago into uranium mining. And this model has been followed by this group now, and um, the group is chaired by Kelly Tranter. I've not met her, but uh, apparently she's a lawyer in in the United States, uh, in Queensland, rather, and she's got quite a diverse panel involved. You've got a number of academics, ex-diplomats, some lawyers. um, Ian Lowe, of course, is one of our leading environmentalists. So these are the people who form this commission. So they have sought inquiries or submissions from the general public. And so far, they've had almost 300 that have arrived and they're now wading through all of that material. So this document, which has just been published, is the interim report looking at what are the costs and consequences of Australia's involvement in US-led wars and the US alliance. And hopefully the final version which is due to be published in the middle of this year, so we get the election out of the way, then they will publish this report in full, and that might help stimulate some debate on Australian foreign policy. What is interesting is that foreign policy may actually be an issue in this year's general election because it looks as though the Australian government will try to argue that an Australian Labor government would be soft on China. So they're actually saying that they're trying to make national security one of their platforms, part of their platform in the general election campaign. So we may have more of a debate about Australian foreign policy, but generally elections are fought in this country on bread and butter issues like the cost of living, inflation, um, and the availability of 
real estate, etc. So it's going to be interesting to see this document when it's published in the middle of the year uh, as to what it's going to cover. And I mean, what are the main concerns for people who are against the Australia-US alliance? This report lists some of them. It's not just all about defence. It's looking at other social and community impacts, the money spent on war that could have been spent on other things like public housing, healthcare, that kind of thing. So it's quite wide ranging. It's very wide ranging indeed. And so what is interesting for me is the way that it's been so structured so that it's not just about uh, the sort of stuff that intrigues the Buttons and Badges Brigade, you know, when you get all these usually elderly men who sit around discussing forced deployments. Uh, that's defence. It's not necessarily foreign policy. So what they've sought to do is to look at a number of different strands in all the submissions that they've received. Remember, they've received almost 300, so that's a, a good number of submissions that they have received. So they're looking at issues relating to Indigenous peoples, economic and social costs, there is an opportunity cost. Obviously, if you spend a dollar on a gun, you can't spend a dollar on social welfare. So there's a, an opportunity cost that's involved. You've also got environmental costs, etc. So it's going to be, a, I think, a very interesting document when it comes out because it it's really trying to, in effect, redefine national security. Among those of us who teach international relations, there is this debate on security. The old vision was national security which is where you look at simply a military approach to foreign affairs. Whereas now people are talking about human security, which means you need to include um, economic and environmental considerations into what you mean by security. So in the same way that international relations experts are now reconceptualizing what we mean by security, so we've got a commission that's been set up in this country which is going to produce a report which will be a good example of this new definition of security. And in fact, one of the criticisms that this inquiry questions or raises is the focus on military power to resolve disputes and the normalisation of conflict and violence as a way of negotiating. What are your thoughts? Well, I've written a lot about conflict resolution and alternative ways of settling disputes. I talk about what I call the triangle of peace. So uh, one side of the triangle is disarmament, Second side of the triangle is the need for alternative ways of settling disputes because governments are not going to disarm in a vacuum. And then thirdly, also looking at the economic and social causes. And I think that our approach to conflict is becoming a little more sophisticated. You won't pick that up in parliamentary debates. I think the politicians are still back um, in the 19th century. But the, again, it's very interesting, and this report will feed into this, that this recognition that, that we just can't keep going around immediately responding to everything through warfare. We have to find a more intelligent way of settling disputes. Otherwise, we're just destined to fight more and more wars. You're listening to Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. I'm Sasha Tannock, and Keith, today we're talking about the Australia-US alliance. Now, you mentioned China before. How does our alliance with the US impact our relationships with countries like Russia and China? Are we at more at risk and more of a target or destined for a future of conflict? Well, we are a target. It's interesting, just with all the broadcasting I've been doing on, on Ukraine, the number of questions I get from uh, talkback programs you know, people saying, are we going to deploy Australian troops to the Ukraine? The assumption is the Americans go in, we go in. 
that's not a healthy assumption to have. Uh, but of course, Australia is involved because of the spy bases that we host in this country, uh, particularly Pine Gap. That is one of the most important spy bases the United States has anywhere in, in the world. So we would be a nuclear target as a result of having that base at Pine Gap. I don't think that China or North Korea or Russia would bother to attack Sydney or Melbourne. That's just real estate. But they would have to go after Pine Gap because Pine Gap is an important part of the American war effort. Remember when the Americans were looking for bin Laden, Pine Gap used to listen to him talking to his mother. He was a good boy, used to ring his mother every week, and people said to him, look, you're, you're running the risk of getting killed. They'll, the Americans will be able to hear what you're saying and they'll be able to um, locate where you are and they will attack you. The Americans were almost able to kill bin Laden through tracking him down through Pine Gap. So Pine Gap is very important to the Americans. So if the Americans were ever to be involved in a war, we would be a target simply through hosting the base at Pine Gap. There, We've got a number of other bases, but it's the Pine Gap one, which is particularly significant. So if you were to go for an independent foreign policy, then I think you'd need to get rid of the American bases, or as I proposed in an earlier book, internationalize them, have them as part of an international monitoring system of satellites, which was a French proposal back in 1978. That would be another way of trying to reduce the risk of our being a nuclear target. It's an interesting prospect because is it in fact possible for Australia to be independent from a foreign policy perspective? Are we large enough and strong enough nation to defend ourselves? Yeah, it's an interesting issue. Um, There has been work done on creating a neutral and non-aligned Australia. Uh, This would mean, obviously, a, a huge change in our psychological outlook and being able to say we are, we're not going to be scared of the rest of the world. It may well mean an increase in defence expenditure. That's the irony, because we would need to be self-sufficient. Would we need, for example, to reintroduce conscription? Uh, this was looked at in the 1930s by um, the politician Billy Wentworth. His argument was that the Japanese would not attack us if they knew there were so many Australians with rifles who were basically farmers, but who knew how to shoot birds down or whatever, wild animals, they could certainly shoot Japanese as they came ashore. So this this was part of the move, even in the 1930s, with the looming war clouds. People were suggesting that Australia could not rely in those days on Great Britain and that we arm Australians to be ready to repel any potential invaders. Now, as we know now, from the captured Japanese documents, they were never going to invade Australia. They they said there's something about the unruly Australian character makes, that makes them impossible to control them. So the, the Japanese were not really going to invade Australia, but they did want to intimidate Australia, hence the attacks on Sydney Harbour and Darwin. So it is possible to create an image of a country that is just not worth your while invading because the people are just so well motivated and so well-armed. Based on also this notion of mobilising citizenry, the other thing you can do is to train people in non-violent resistance. In other words, how do you immobilise military vehicles from the other side? You could do all those sorts of things. There was a guy called Sharp, Gene Sharp, 
died recently, I think. I was with him when he met with the Catholic bishops. This was when this was back in the old days, forty years ago, when the arms race was a big issue, and um, the Catholic bishops were intrigued by what Gene Sharp had to say. He's, if you like, one of the the father figures of the so-called Arab Spring, which brought down the Egyptian government, the Tunisian government, etc. And the Catholic bishops asked Gene Sharp, "Would you teach children these techniques?" And he said, "Oh, absolutely." Children can be very good at disrupting an invading force. And the bishops were horrified because they could say, well, these people disrupt our schools. <laughs> I, can, <laughs> I can only imagine that being put into the curriculum here. I'm not sure how that would go down. So, And that then raised the interesting issue. Well, how does it work in some societies and not others? This is the sort of the debate that really ought to be going on rather than just blindly just going ahead and purchasing submarines, etc. We need to have more of a discussion, I think, about options that Australia has. We have a very narrow range of debates when it comes to discussing Australian foreign policy. And in fact, there are a number of alternative defence policies when you look at some other countries in terms of New Zealand, Switzerland, Sweden, Vietnam. There's different models around the world that we could look at and lend ourselves to in different ways. Absolutely. And the Swiss one is a good example because they are surrounded by hostile countries, although they're now generally friendly. But if you go back into their history, they were hostile. And yet the Swiss, through a process of compulsory national service and by good social cohesion methods, are able to create a cohesive society so that nobody in their right mind would want to invade Switzerland. And Hitler realised that. Hitler thought he could go through invading Switzerland, but in fact would not do so. And the military wouldn't invade Switzerland because they said it's just going to be too costly for us to try to take on Switzerland. So, in fact, we could actually create ourselves as being a Switzerland, but it would require very big changes in our mindset. And as I said at the beginning, we have this deeply embedded fear that we can't defend ourselves and the country is too large. Therefore, we just rely on a great and powerful friend and trust that that great powerful friend will assist us in our hour of need. We've got no guarantee that will happen. That's in not what, actually part of the agreement that they have to, is that, isn't that well, correct? Well, when you say in a part of the agreement, yeah. the, the theory, yeah, general public would say, oh, yeah, there the is an agreement. Is there. But in fact, yeah. it's not there. <laughs> and no country is ever going to give a blank check to another country saying, I will always protect you in the event of an invasion. Even NATO, which is seen as the world's best military alliance, does not have that sort of cast iron guarantee. You can't do that. That's got us into World War I when the British did go to the defence of Belgium because they said we've got a treaty obligation. Since 1914, governments have become a lot more cautious about giving blank checks to always protecting other countries. And what about trade? How does that factor into any alliance? I mean, how does our US alliance impact relations with or our reliance on China, for example, for trade? I mean, does that have to be factored into this? I think it does because the issue of trade is that the risk that you run um, is that if you just follow America blindly on certain issues, like being hostile towards China, the Chinese will attack us as a way of attacking the United States. You kill the chicken to scare the monkey. So what they're doing is that by beating up Australia, they're trying to send a message to America that China is a tough country. So uh, do you think we're likely to see a change in the Australia-US alliance anytime soon? I mean, this public inquiry certainly raises a lot of questions. It does. And I, I see it as part of this process of uh, having to come to terms with Australia, just being overly reliant on the United States, as we were overly reliant 
on Great Britain between 1788 and 1941. So Australia at some point will need to stand up for its own affairs. We saw this very briefly with Donald Trump in his four years in the White House when he was just basically saying to American allies, you cannot count on America. I think he was being very truthful. There is this deep streak of isolationism in American foreign policy. Americans are tired of fighting other people's wars. They've lost too much blood and treasure. And Donald Trump for four years was in a sense sending out a warning that America cannot always be relied upon in the future. And I think that this report is going to come at a good time because Americans are suffering from combat fatigue. There is a sense of exhaustion. They've fought these expensive wars overseas. They've got nothing to show for it. Both wars, Iraq and Afghanistan, have resulted in defeats, along with a lot of other failed US ventures overseas in military activities. So I think this report's coming at a good time because we know the Americans may not always be as reliable as some of our politicians claim, and it's important that we just learn to stand on our own two feet. So I think I'm looking forward to reading the final version of the report when it comes out in the middle of this year. Certainly much to debate when it comes to the future of that alliance. Thanks, Keith. Looking forward to chatting to you again next week. Thank you. That was this week's episode of Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. Make sure you tune in next week when we'll break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now and what's likely to happen in the future. Listener.